Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our series through the book of Exodus and this unique, amazing, perplexing journey that these Israelites are, are on. Last week, we began our making our way through the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we are in the second, we'll be studying the second commandment. If you look with me in verse 4. Moses has has written this for our benefit and for our blessing and for our instruction. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Father, we we eagerly eagerly desire you to speak to us this morning through your word. Lord, we eagerly desire to hear your voice just as these Israelites did that in the hearing of your voice our lives are transformed. And we are drawn to you and we know you better. Lord, may this passage this morning help us to draw near to you, to honor you, to declare your worthiness, and to once again just be grateful for what you have done in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks back, we saw in chapter 19, God getting Israel's attention as he descends on Mount Sinai in lightning and in thunder and billowing smoke and the mountain and the ground shaking all around and clouds covering and nonstop trumpets that blare louder and louder by the minute. And this is Israel's experience with God at Mount Sinai, their opening experience. And it sets the tone as God is revealing himself to the people of Israel. He uses these displays of his power to make himself known, to reveal who he is. But now God has done something special. As we've entered chapter 20, he does something above and beyond 
shaking and lightning and thunder and clouds and billowing smoke and non-stop trumpets. God speaks to Israel. The creator of the universe, the almighty God, speaks to Israel. And the first words he speaks are these ten commandments. It is one of the most climactic moments in all of biblical history. And these people are right there. Not not for just what is said, but that God himself speaks to his people. This this moment sets the future for Israel as the people of God. Now they still camped around Mount Sinai. They are fed daily by God's manna, still receiving the provision of God. But now Israel is about to be fed by God's word. After this frightening and this unforgettable display of his power, God speaks to them and they are overwhelmed. And as we read a little bit further in chapter 20, they beg Moses to listen and to speak to God on their behalf. They are too frightened. They're overwhelmed by this. So, so they just say, listen, speak to God for us and then you can speak to us. And so that's what happens. God speaks to Moses. He inscribes the Ten Commandments. And then Moses, these ten laws inscribed by God on stone tablets, these what are known as ten words, the ten words as they're known to guide and protect and watch over Israel. Moses shares this with the people of Israel. Ten words that express, most importantly, you get anything from these Ten Commandments, ten words that express the deep love that God has for his people. It is too easy for us to just default to an understanding of this is law and we get it right or we get it wrong. And if we don't get it right, we get punished. And if we get it wrong, you know, we're in a lot of trouble. No, no, no. This is most importantly, the love that God has for his people because it protects his people. It guards his people. It warns his people. It watches over his people. It transforms his people. And this passage, this passage, which is one of the the longer commandments, this passage I've divided into three parts this morning. Part one is the prohibition. What God prohibits. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he speaks these 10 words to Israel. And the first one he spoke in verse three that we studied last week was the most and is the most important commandment of all because it sets the, the foundation for all the other commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods. In fact, there are no real gods. There is no such thing as an other God, except for the ones that we manufacture in our own hearts and our own lives. But, but he is saying here, you shall have no other gods before me. And it might seem that the four, this second commandment, verse four, is just a repeat of the first commandment with a little bit more specifics, but it's not. It is, it is more. It's, 
and, and you might think that the first commandment is sufficient enough to just move us away from, from idolatry, to get the point across about idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship anything else because the worship of false gods is, is wrong. But there's more work. There's more work to be done in Israel. As there is always more work to be done in us. And in the first commandment that God forbids the false gods that Israel should not worship. Now in this commandment, in verse 4, 5, and 6, he is saying that this has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. Worshiping the right God in the right way. I mean... There is no argument from the first commandment that, that worshiping any image of a false god is, is prohibited. In the second commandment, Israel is being told that the making of any image, and it's not talking about false idols, it's talking about making an image of God himself, of Yahweh. That's the, that's the thrust behind this passage, that, that is this, this commandment that you are not to make Images of Yahweh. Not to make images of the creator, the one who created, and what you see here, all that is in heaven above and all that is in the earth beneath or all that is under the water. You are not to bow down and and serve these images that you've made of the living God. Because that is as much a violation, a wicked violation of the first commandment. This, this is a radical shift for Israel. Because you've got to remember where Israel came from. They lived in Egypt for so long. And in those years in Egypt, they were making idols. They had adopted Egypt's worship of false gods. And the making of idols was something familiar to the Israelites. And so it would be natural for them to make an idol, an image of the living God. The one who just appeared on Mount Sinai, who came in thunder and smoke and lightning and billowing clouds and trumpets. It would be easy to make a physical image to worship. And, and actually, as you will see a little later on in Exodus, when the golden calf is made, it wasn't some strange God they were worshiping. That golden calf was designed to represent Yahweh, familiar to Israel, a standard religious practice for Israel. And idolatry is, listen, it is so serious. Idols that we, gods that we worship, that we manufacture, and images that we create. It is so serious that God devotes two commandments to eradicating it. It's because idolatry denies God's glory. It draws worship away from him and it ultimately ruins the one who is an idolater. So in this this culture at this time, Idols, gods, images were objects that everyone could see and everyone could touch. And in in the first commandment, it's clear that there are no real gods, only Yahweh alone. And the worship of objects is wrong. But, But there's more. These images made of God are are wrong. In 2 Kings chapter 10, King Jehu got the first commandment right. He 
he was praised for eliminating Baal worship in Israel by putting to death Queen Jezebel and by putting to death all of the Baal priests, the ministers of Baal. He got rid of these false idols. He rid Israel, Israel, Israel false gods, but he didn't go far enough because he allowed the people to break the second commandment. If you look in 2 Kings 10, he let them worship golden calves that represented Yahweh. They made image exactly what this commandment forbids. 24, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth or that is in the water under the earth beneath. Now this, this covers everything. There's, there's no room for any image at all of anything to try and represent God. Israel cannot think of God in Egyptian terms any longer. That's over. He is not like Egypt's gods, and he cannot be made into some kind of image. This is the prohibition of the second commandment. Not only are they not to worship false gods, they must worship God in the right way. The invisible God. Philip Riken said this in his commentary, He said, I don't know if it it is good. This was the problem with idolatry all along. It created a false image of God that was inadequate to his deity and unworthy of his majesty. God is infinite and invisible. He is omnipotent and omnipresent. He is a living spirit. Therefore, to carve him into a piece of wood or stone is to deny his attributes, the essential characteristics of his divine being. An idol makes the infinite God finite. The invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. Thus, the whole idea of idolatry rests on the absurdity of human beings trying to make their own image of God. An idol is not the truth, but a lie. It is a God who cannot see, know, act, love, or save. Now, I'm sure, because this is the question I asked as I was preparing and studying this passage. How does this commandment have any relevance to me today? Because I don't have any wood or stone carvings in my house. I've never attempted to make any wood or stone carvings. Uh, how does this, this, this image idolatry problem is thousands of years removed from us? It's another world away. We, we get that idols of the heart exist. We, we, we do. And, and that we must fiercely battle against them. But, but who's making images of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit today? Is, is there any application of this passage to us? Because it's tempting to think of this passage as something of the past and not relevant. But let me tell you something. We make images of the living God far more often than you might think. More common to us. Let me give you an outward illustration. A <clears throat> number of years ago, Marilyn and I were in Venice, Italy. I have never seen more beautiful 
structures of the churches that were there. Just these edifices of incredible gifting, artistic gifting. And they're, they're stunning. But they are this commandment violated. Church building after church building after church building of images of God and Jesus and and doves representing the Holy Spirit. And you just you just look there and you just and this is what drew people's attention. And it was used to draw people to worship God. Modern churches looking to be culturally relevant do it with light shows, candles, visual images on screens, dramas and dance, rather than allowing God's word to draw their attention. But there's also the inward. We can also make an idol or an image whenever we attempt to turn God into something that we can control. This is the whole point of pagan idolatry. The the pagan practice, they never believed that that the, the idol itself, the image was the God itself. What they believed was that 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 God's presence would be with that idol. And so what they would do, they would, they would feed that idol. They would clean that idol. They would care for that idol in effort to get that image, whatever it is, to, to give them something. Whether it was the desire for fertility, the desire for rain, the desire for protection, the desire for material things. That's how these people would approach that God. If I just do this, this God will do that. Have we not done that at times? They believed that by doing this, they could actually control how this God lived. So if I did this, if I fed this God, so they would take, they would bring food into this idol. They'd place this food before the idol and they would think, okay, I fed this idol. Now this idol is obligated to do something for me. Have we not ever thought like that about God? Today, in Christianity, people are looking, many people, they're looking for a user-friendly God. A, A God who can be shaped and adapted to fulfill their desires. Good desires often, but but desires nonetheless. If I do this, then God will do that. If I give generously, then God will make me rich. If I pray the right prayer every day, endless. (laughs) How often we, we do something where we think, if I just do this, God is obligated to respond in a good way. I'm writing that tithe check. I'm giving that tithe check. There's no way I'm getting any surprise bills this week in the mail. Oh, yeah? If I pray the right prayer every day, I'll experience God's blessing and no suffering. See, the, see the, reason, I, the reason I had a flat tire on the way to work was I didn't have my devotions. If I'd had my devotions this morning, I would have never gotten a flat tire. If I had my devotion this morning, whatever happened today that was not good would not have happened. Have you ever thought like that? 
If I follow the right parenting method, God will make my children grow up to be godly. Really? I only let God speak to me through this speaker or this writer. They're the ones who get to my heart. I only have my devotional time in this chair (laughs) or this space because that's where God speaks. Brothers and sisters, that's image making. That's putting God in a place of our choosing. As long as I approach God the right way, I'll get what I want. That's image making. Philip Ryken said, when, when he commands us not to make idols, he is saying he will not be captured, contained, assigned, or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. He will not be captured. He will not be contained. He will not be assigned. He will not be managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. Sadly, many, and I don't use the word many lightly, many Christians worship a God they want to control and they can control and can be shaped by them. The, they only worship the attributes they like. They worship him for his love, but not his hatred of sin. They worship him for his mercy, but not his wrath. They worship him for his forgiveness, but not his judgment against sin. They remake God into their own image of who he should be and what he should be like. This is not what my God does. Sadly, having been a pastor now for 35 years, I've had more than my share of spouses sit in front of me and tell me the reason they're getting divorced is because God wants them to be happy. And getting divorced is what will make them happy. That's shaping God into our image. And oftentimes we fight to keep this distorted and idolatrous view intact and we give it our full allegiance. It can become our master. It can become the object of our affection, the object of our service. Because, listen, people, people want a God who thinks like they do. That's what they want. They want a God who thinks like they do. Read the book of Job. And discover a God who does not think like you do. That's what Job discovered. This this God, he doesn't think anything like me. And this is not the God I want. Let me tell you about the God I want, Job tells you. And then he shapes his image of God. That's a violation. Of this commandment. So that's part one. The prohibition. 
Part two are the consequences of obedience or, or disobedience. Look with me in verse five. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And John, if you remember in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this is, this is a short point, but here's the warning. The consequence of disobedience is severe. The, the warning is just that if Israel fails to obey this command, it will suffer the punishment of God's judgment, his holy judgment, even to succeeding generations. Now, you have to understand, this is, this is not this some unfair you know, oh, yeah, my, my great-great-grandfather was just this wicked sinner, and I'm, I'm getting all the, the junk from it, and God's still treating me badly. No, no, no. If you look at the passage, it says, and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The fourth generation. This is not saying that righteous children will suffer for their parents' sins, but those children who follow in their parents' disobedience. It, it seems that the reality spoken here is that the example of parents who disobey God's commands greatly impacts their children's future. To the third and fourth generation, because it sets the tone, it sets an example that children will model. But then there's not just the warning, there's this promise. On the other hand, the promise of the blessing that God makes to those who obey. He extends this blessing not just to the third and fourth generation, but to thousands. To thousands. The promise of blessing and grace here is so much more powerful than the warning and the consequence of disobedience. That's just a display of the grace of God. It's a promise that lasts forever in Christ because of Christ. God's blessings and triumph over the curse of sin is because Jesus took the curse of sin upon himself. So there is this promise right here. And then there's part three, God's jealousy. And that's the title of my message. Why is God jealous? Why is God jealous? Verse 5, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now this, this really is the hinge of the verse. Both, both sides rocking back and forth on this one verse. Why no man-made images? Why such severe consequences? Because God is a jealous God. He forbids idolatry because he is jealous for his people to give their exclusive attention and affection to him. Now, God's jealousy cannot, cannot, and should not be viewed in the same way humans express jealousy. His jealousy is anchored and and it's motivated first by his appropriate desire to be glorified by us, by Israel, by his people, and to not share that glory with anything or anyone else. And then he is jealous to 
by his love to protect us and to care for us and to bless us because we are, we are the ones who bear his image. And he wants to restore the image that was originally ruined by us. Listen, God's jealousy is not this insecure, insane, possessive human jealousy that we so often think about when we think about the word jealousy, when we hear that word. We think of this green-eyed monster. God is not a green-eyed monster in heaven. His jealousy is a deep and caring devotion to those he loves. A deep and caring devotion to those he loves. If, listen, if God were not jealous, if God were not jealous for his people to, to live these holy lives, if God were not jealous for us to obey him, if God were not jealous for us to glorify him, if God were not jealous out of his love to protect us, it would be like a husband who doesn't care if his wife is being unfaithful to him. Oh, no big deal. That's what God would be like if he were not jealous. That would be grievous. Desmond Alexander said in his commentary, having rescued the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, which included enslavement to another God, Yahweh is concerned that the people should never again find themselves in a similar situation. His jealousy for the well-being of the Israelites expresses itself in anger towards anything that might endanger their future relationship with him. The intensity of his wrath at threats to this relationship is directly proportional to the depth of his love. God is jealous because he loves you. Listen, there, there is only one image of God that has ever been allowed that God is not jealous of. And that is us. We were created in the image of God. We are image bearers. Not that we are ever to be worshipped, but that we might reflect God's glory so that he will be worshipped. There's no one like him. There's no one like him who will ever be worthy of receiving his glory, glory that he's due. He is rightly jealous because he's like no other. Only God is worthy to be worshipped. Only God. Even something good is not to be engaged in and to falsely be worshipped. In Revelation 22, John has is on the island of Patmos. He has just had this incredible revelation from God. It has been stunning to him. He has fallen down. He is on his knees. There is an angel there and he begins to worship this angel. And this angel rightly, appropriately says to John, You must not do that. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And then he says this, worship God. Worship God. 
Nothing else. God simply says in this passage that there is nothing else in this world that can sufficiently capture my glory, my worthiness, my perfections, my character, and my being that would allow you to worship something else. To do so provokes my jealousy. We are image bearers, but we are not image makers. We are image bearers, but we are not reshapers of God who who reshape and control and manipulate God to live in this world that we've created for him. We live in his world. God descended on Mount Sinai to meet with his people and to speak with them so they can understand the freedom that they were given. No longer slaves of Egypt, but children of God. No longer under the harsh, tyrannical rule of Pharaoh, but under the kind and benevolent and protective covenant promises and laws of God. Laws rooted in his deep and compassionate love for them. He came to them on this mount. He spoke to them because he loved them. Now, remember this. Thousands of years later, God came again. This time, though, he didn't come in lightning and thunder and smoke and shaking mountains and clouds and incessant trumpets. He came quietly on a dark winter night with almost no fanfare, except for a few angels proclaiming. And when he came, there were no stone tablets with words inscribed on them, but God, the Son, the Word became flesh. That's who came. He came and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, our Savior, came as the Word. That new law would be written on our hearts and save us from the ruined image that we currently bear. He came to forgive our sins and to bear our wrath and to pay our debt and to die our death on a cross. To restore that image. The image that he gave us. He came to fulfill his promise that we might have life and have it more abundantly. These Ten Commandments, they're the revelation and preparation of the Messiah who will come and who will restore us as image bearers. By his word, the word became flesh. That we might bring glory to him in all that we do. Now, maybe there is some image you have reduced God to in your mind. With your expectations or maybe in some demand that you might have to be the kind of God you desire. If so, there is something you can do differently. You can destroy that false and diminished image of God like Jehu had done with the Baal worshippers. And you can turn to him as your refuge And as your hope. To be God's proper image bearers. We must be jealous. To guard his name. 
and to protect his glory. Because he demands rightly of us utter and absolute loyalty. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are image bearers of you this morning. And that we are image bearers who by the work of your gracious and precious son has restored who we are in our relationship with you. Lord, may, may our image reflect your glory. May our image bring to your, bring to your kingdom a honor and worthiness. May, may all that we say and do represent you and represent you well. Lord, thank you that you've given us these commandments to reflect on. That we can learn of you and we can be transformed by you for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.